Christian Church. Uh, my name is Ben Halliburton. I'm the senior pastor here at Prairie View, and I've been gone the past two Sundays, uh, as we mentioned earlier in the service, and Zach, our associate minister, preached in my absence, and uh, I listened to those sermons as well online after they were preached, and uh, Zach did a really good job with that. Um, I'm really happy to be back, and I just thought it was worth mentioning. Uh, every time that we go on vacation, Olivia and I find ourselves thinking, you know, days one through three, you know, man, we wish we could live down here. We just wish we didn't have to go back. Uh, we wish this vacation would last forever. And then days maybe four through six are kind of the same way, but, you know, maybe not quite as romantic, and we're getting a little more used to our vacation. Uh, and then around day seven or eight, we find ourselves wanting to come home. Uh, because as nice as vacations are, and we love them just as much as anybody does, uh, they're refreshing, they're relaxing. The weather in Florida was much more tropical than it is here today. Uh, however, we always find ourselves thinking on those last day or two of the vacation that, you know, as nice as this has been, this just isn't really where we belong. Uh, we belong somewhere else. We belong in Indiana. We belong with Prairie View. We belong at that church. We belong with people like you. Uh, and so we love you all. We missed you all. We're happy to be back. And I hope that you feel that same sense of belonging to this church and to this group of people. So thanks again for praying for us while we were gone, but we're glad to be back. Now, this morning on Palm Sunday, I want to talk about Jerusalem, because Jerusalem is one of the most important cities in human history. If you think about it, three of the world's largest religions, Christianity, Islam, and Judaism, all consider Jerusalem to be an incredibly significant place. Some of those people would even call Jerusalem holy or sacred ground. Blood has been shed in the city of Jerusalem as religious leaders, kings, and armies throughout the ages have all vied for control of this one unique piece of ground. To this day, various religious groups, ethnic peoples, and nations dispute who Jerusalem really belongs to, to the point of hatred and violence. Jerusalem is so important that even though it's in the heart of one of the most volatile regions in the world, people still feel drawn to it. And it doesn't seem like people visit it. Some would tell you that making a pilgrimage is more accurate. In the Old Testament, Jerusalem may appear as early as Genesis 14. Then it was referred to as simply Salem. Jerusalem was inhabited by a people known as the Jebusites until King David conquered the city and made it the capital of Israel. The Ark of the Covenant once rested in Jerusalem. David's son Solomon built the first permanent temple there. There are entire psalms dedicated to the glory of of Jerusalem. And then some 70 years after Babylon destroyed it in 586 BC, many Israelites returned to Jerusalem to repopulate it and rebuild it. Because even though it may have looked like nothing more than a pile of rubble to some people, to them it was still Jerusalem. In the New Testament, Rome controlled the city of Jerusalem, but the Israelites looked forward to the day when the Messiah would liberate it. In the days of Jesus, people still called Jerusalem the city of God, the city of David, the city of the great king. And then in the book of Revelation, God's glorious eternal kingdom, 
the place where there is no curse, there are no tears, and God himself is our light. That place is referred to as none other than the new Jerusalem. So hopefully by now you've gotten my point that Jerusalem is anything but just another city. And that's why today, on Palm Sunday, one week before Easter, Christians around the world will gather in churches and read about the day that Jesus entered into Jerusalem with great pomp and circumstance. The Gospel of Luke does a particularly good job of showing that Jerusalem was always the city that Jesus' life and ministry were leading to. In Luke chapter 9, verse 51, we read, That when the days drew near for him to be taken up, Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. And then in between Luke 9 and then the passage in chapter 19 about the triumphal entry, we see multiple mentions of Jerusalem. They were going to Jerusalem. They were journeying towards Jerusalem, on their way to Jerusalem. So today we read the story of Jesus' entry into that city. We'll talk a little bit about how people responded to him when he came into town and what Jesus found when he got there. And then, as Mark mentioned just a few moments ago from the stage, we're going to see why Jesus wept over this supposedly great city. And then last, we're going to discuss what Jesus' entry into Jerusalem tells us about who he is to this very day and how we are called to respond to him this morning. So, open your Bibles to Luke chapter 19, verse 28. Feel free to use the Bibles here if you didn't bring one, and take a Bible home if you don't have one. But, before we read, let's pray. Father, again, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time that we have together. Uh, Father, thank you for bringing me back to this church, my family back to this church after a couple weeks away. Uh, Father, thank you that other people who traveled over spring break also got back safely. And Father, thank you for this morning, uh, this opportunity to uh, worship with my brothers and sisters in Christ here in this room. Uh, Again, being away uh, really serves to help me realize how much I love these people, how much we love these people. Uh, And so, Father, I pray that our worship this morning would be honoring to you. Uh, I pray that as we look at these texts that we probably have read before, uh, these stories that we're familiar with on Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday next week, uh, I still pray that they wouldn't lose their power, that no matter how many times we read these stories, uh, no matter how many times we hear them taught or preached, that we would be reminded of our salvation, that our salvation did not come about by accident, uh, that our salvation did not come cheaply either, but rather your son Jesus Christ knew exactly what he was doing when he went into town. And his broken body and shed blood were the price paid for our forgiveness, for our reconciliation. And it's only because of his broken body and shed blood that we can dare come into your presence and dare call you our Father. But Father, we can, and we can do that with confidence because of Christ. So remind us of that this morning. Remind us of that next week as well. Remind us of that every single day. We love you, we worship you, we thank you for Christ, and we ask this all in his name. Amen. Well, starting in Luke chapter 19, verse 28. And when Jesus had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. 
When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. The Gospel of John includes the detail about palm branches, that palm branches were lining the road along with those cloaks. As Jesus was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, If these were silent, the very stones would cry out. So as you read these verses, two big things really grab your attention. The first one is one you've heard before on Palm Sunday, and that's Jesus' complete control over this situation. He tells the disciples exactly where to go. He tells them what to do. He tells them what to say. And everything occurs exactly the way He said it would. The point is that Jesus is not just passively going along with circumstances outside of his control, unsure of how things are going to shake out. He's more like the conductor leading a symphony, directing every single person in just how to play their part. Jesus knows exactly what awaits him in Jerusalem. He knows he'll be betrayed. He knows he'll suffer. He knows he will die. But he faithfully obeys his father. And he goes anyway. But then the second thing you should notice when you read these verses is there is a lot of Old Testament reference and imagery in this passage. And again, with Jesus being such complete control of the situation, none of this imagery is a coincidence. None of this is an accident. For example, Jesus riding the colt into Jerusalem is an allusion to Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. That passage says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Zion being another name for Jerusalem. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humbled and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus knew what Zechariah 9.9 said. The crowd knew what Zechariah 9.9 said. This is no accident. This is no coincidence. Zechariah 9 is all about Israel being delivered. It's all about their king coming. It's all about their enemies being defeated and judged. Jesus knows that. And the crowd knows that too. But then you also see that imagery of the palms. In the ancient world, the palms laid out before Jesus would have symbolized victory, prosperity, and blessing. 
Now, when we see palms, many of us think of vacation, don't we? In cartoons, when the person dying of thirst in the desert imagines an oasis, it always has some big, beautiful palm trees right next to it. We associate palms with rest, with refreshment, and with life. And they did too. And then there are those announcements of the crowd, inspired by Psalm 118, verse 26. That passage says, Blessed is he who comes in the name of of the Lord. In Matthew's gospel, the crowds say, Hosanna, that word meaning God saves. They call Jesus the son of David, which is basically shorthand for the next king of Israel. So if you put it all together, Jesus entering Jerusalem on a donkey leads to a lot of hype. It leads to a lot of excitement. The reason Jesus gets this parade The reason he receives this royal welcome is that the crowds are convinced that this is the guy. The Messiah is finally here after all these years, and it's only a matter of time until he establishes his throne, overthrows our oppressors, puts Jerusalem back where it belongs as the most glorious city on earth, and gives us control of it where it belongs. The hype is there. You can sense the excitement in this crowd. When the Pharisees question their enthusiasm, and when they suggest that Jesus rebuke them for making such over-the-top announcements about him, Jesus doesn't correct them. He doesn't correct the crowd because everything they say about him is true. He really is righteous. He really is the bringer of salvation. He really is the king from David's line, and he really is the Messiah. And Jesus even goes so far to say that even if no one on earth made the announcements that this this crowd made, if no one on earth could recognize him, it would still be true. Even the rocks would cry out the glory of Christ. So again, you can sense the excitement. You can sense the thrill in those people's hearts as they see Jesus riding into town on a donkey. All their hopes, all their expectations, all those prophecies, all those promises are finally going to be realized. Right? Well, so far, so good. Think about it. After three years of controversial ministry and several attempts to kill him, Jesus has successfully made it to Jerusalem the city of kings, unscathed. He's received a hero's welcome. Crowds have worshipped him. And sure, the Pharisees may have been sticks in the mud, but their skepticism can't match the party-like atmosphere that Jesus has just entered into. So why is it that the first thing Jesus does when he enters the city of Jerusalem is weep? What's there to weep about? Everything's falling exactly into place the way it's supposed to, right? We'll look at verse 41. And when Jesus drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. 
And they will not leave one stone upon another in you, because you did not know the time of your visitation. So why is it that Jesus weeps when everything seems to be going so well? Well, Jesus weeps because he knows that despite the warm welcome he got when he arrived, Jerusalem is the place where he will be ultimately rejected. Even though the masses welcome Jesus to town on Palm Sunday, they'll prove to be blind later in the week. In their willful ignorance, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, don't recognize Jesus for who he really is. Even the temple, the place that Jesus referred to as his father's house when he was a young boy, even the temple has been corrupted from a house of prayer into a den of robbers. Even Jesus' own disciples didn't understand what would happen to him in Jerusalem. They couldn't wrap their minds around Jesus' predictions that he would be delivered to the Gentiles, mocked, shamefully treated, spit upon, flogged, and killed. Jesus weeps over Jerusalem because he knows what's coming. Look past the cheers. Look past the ticker tape parade. Look past all the celebration, look past all the balloons, look past all the laughter, all the smiling, all the things that seem to be so wonderful and so good. Look past all those things and Jesus sees what's coming. He weeps because while he may have been welcomed as a king, he knows that is not how he'll leave. But this actually isn't the first time that Jesus sees the city of Jerusalem and weeps. Earlier in the gospel, chapter 13, verse 31, we read this. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to Jesus, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And Jesus said to them, Go and tell that fox. Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken. And I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus weeps over Jerusalem because he knows his history. And he knows the Old Testament better than anybody. He knows that God's people do not have a good track record of recognizing and listening to God's messengers. Far too many times, the glorious city of Jerusalem has been a place of rebellion, persecution, and death. And Jesus knows that the treatment he will soon receive would be no different. And sure enough, in Luke chapter 19, verse 47, Jesus' prophecy starts to come into shape. The chief priests, the scribes, the principal men of the people begin plotting on how they can destroy him. So clearly something is not right in Jerusalem. Because the city of God doesn't recognize God when he comes to visit. 
The city of David proves to be hostile to David's son. The city of kings rejects its one true king. The city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it will soon add a new name to the list. That's why Jesus weeps over the city of Jerusalem. Because they have forsaken God. And this becomes all the more clear when they crucify Jesus in just a few days. And when they do that, they invite God's judgment upon themselves. So the question is, how did we get here? What went so wrong in Jerusalem? How is it that this city that is spoken of so glowingly throughout so many passages in Scripture can become this place of persecution, rebellion, death, and disobedience? What went wrong in this city? Well, Jerusalem is full of sinners. That's what went wrong. In Luke chapter 19, verses 11 through 27, the verses immediately before the triumphal entry, Jesus tells a story about a nobleman who takes a trip and leaves his servants in charge while he's gone. And some of the servants do well in his absence. They steward his resources rightly, they make wise decisions, and ultimately they're rewarded for it. But there's another servant who doesn't steward the nobleman's resources very well, doesn't make wise decisions, and then tries to justify his poor service by saying that he was afraid of the nobleman, afraid of his severity, afraid of his cruelty, afraid to do something wrong. But perhaps most importantly in that parable, we see citizens of this nobleman's land. And the citizens of this nobleman's land decide while he's gone that they do not want this man to reign over them anymore. We do not want him to reign over us anymore. So the nobleman punishes the unfaithful servant, and the citizens who did not want him to reign over them are slaughtered. It's a very disturbing parable. But you see, when Jesus enters Jerusalem on Palm Sunday... He finds a city full of people who didn't recognize him. He finds a city full of sinners. He finds a city full of citizens who do not want him to reign over them. I mean, even the ones who did welcome him with praise and adoration and open arms didn't really understand who he was. Didn't really understand what he had come to do. And as soon as they realize that Jesus isn't the kind of king they had hoped for, they will either turn on him, become completely apathetic on what happens to him, or flee. Even Jesus' twelve disciples will be scattered. So when when Jesus comes to Jerusalem, he finds a city full of people who, in the words of that parable, do not want this man to reign over them. And with the way that they treat him in just a few days, arresting him, trying him, crucifying, they deserve God's judgment. It becomes clear that they too deserve to die. Now as I thought about what we can learn from this text this morning, Palm Sunday, I kept coming back to that phrase from the parable that we just read. We do not want this man to reign over us. 
As I thought about that phrase, you know, that's basically the same mentality that Adam and Eve had in the Garden of Eden. With a little nudge from Satan, of course, they decided that they too did not want God to reign over them. And ever since Adam and Eve, mankind has felt the same way. We do not want God to reign over us. That's why when left to ourselves, we fight, we kick, we resist, we rebel, we abandon, we disobey, and we dishonor, at least until we find ourselves in a jam. And then we might offer a little bit of half-hearted remorse, semi-repentance. Maybe we worship God with our lips, even though our hearts are far from him, and we promise that this time we'll do better if God will just help us out. And then as soon as we're out of that jam, we go back to fighting, kicking, resisting, rebelling, abandoning, disobeying, and dishonoring. Over and over again. It's the cycle that we see in our world. It's the cycle that we so often see in our own lives. It's the cycle that we see repeated throughout Scripture. You know, Jerusalem was the city that killed the prophets in the Old Testament because The prophets called the people to abandon their sin and return to God. The prophets reminded the people that they're not in charge, that God is. But the people didn't like that, so they killed those prophets. They stoned God's messengers. And it's the same old song and dance in Jerusalem, the week between Palm Sunday and Easter. Only this time, the people of Jerusalem don't just kill a prophet. They kill God's own son. They make it clear that they did not want God to reign over them. And thus, they invite God's judgment upon themselves. Now, you know, it may be tempting to look back and wonder how these people could have done such a thing. How could they have gotten it so wrong? How did they not recognize Jesus for who he was? How did they go so far off the path? But realistically, we're not that much different. We like to imagine ourselves in Jerusalem defending Jesus, being the one voice standing up and saying, now hold on, wait a minute, don't crucify him. That's what we like to imagine, isn't it? But truthfully, we too follow in the footsteps of Adam and Eve. We too, when left to ourselves, are sinful, fallen, and rebellious people. We too don't like hearing that God is king instead of us. We like to be kings. We like to be queens. And we too deserve death, just like they did. The only reason we don't get that death is that by God's grace, Jesus died on the cross for our sins, in our place. But you know what's really scary? Is that even after we believe in Jesus, even after we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit, after we're baptized, after we're reading scripture, after we're part of a church family, after we're doing all the things that Christians are supposed to do, sometimes we still find ourselves resisting God's reign. We may allow God to reign over one area of our lives, but not the others. We may allow God to have some say in our lives from 10 a.m. to noon on Sunday morning, but Monday through Saturday, that's our time. 
We may occasionally let God reign in one area of our lives, but then on the other areas of our lives, we only let him in on our terms. We might not mind having God as an advisor or a co-pilot or a therapist or our friend or even our savior at times. But we don't want him as our Lord. We don't want him as our king. Even now, if we're honest, there are moments when we still don't want him to reign over us. So this morning, on Palm Sunday, we ask the Holy Spirit to expose those areas of our lives that we haven't submitted to God's reign and repent. And we ask the Holy Spirit to work in our hearts and minds, to rid them slowly but surely of this rebellion that we're so often drawn back towards. And we remind each other that we fulfill our greatest purpose when we welcome Christ as king over every square inch of our lives on his terms. And may we remember that we find our greatest joy when we allow Christ to reign over us. May we remember that the king who calls us to worship him The king who deserves all of our glory, deserves all of our praise, deserves all of our obedience, is a king who was willing to go to a cross for us, even though we did not want him to reign over us. As we mentioned earlier, the palms are often associated with rest and relaxation. They remind us of nourishment, they remind us of life, like that refreshing oasis in the middle of a dry desert. But this week, we remember that for Jesus, palms didn't lead to rest and relaxation. They led into a city full of rebellious citizens who didn't hesitate to crucify him. The palms led him to a cross. And it's only because Jesus faithfully took that path of palms into Jerusalem and onto a cross that rebels like the ones in that city and rebels like us today can be saved. Sinners deserve judgment, whether they resist God's reign in the Garden of Eden, ancient Jerusalem, or Fishers, Indiana. And it's only because of what happened in Jerusalem, a few days after Jesus' triumphal entry, that sinners like us don't get the judgment that we deserve. So this Palm Sunday, may we remember the cross that our King marched toward. The one thing standing between us and eternal judgment. May we spur each other on to obedience to this king. May we look forward to the day when we stand in our king's presence in the new, glorious, and eternal Jerusalem. The place where there is no curse, there are no tears, and God is our light. The place where we will worship with the prophets, God's messengers, all of God's people, where we will live with him forever. Where every single day we will say, open the gates to our king, that he may come in. And we'll actually mean it. May we look forward to that day. May we spur each other on to that day. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time that we have together. Thank you for the reminder of Palm Sunday. That even though you came to a people who would reject you, 
you came to rebels and thieves and robbers. You came to sinners. You came in order to die for our sins. You came and your body was broken on that cross. Your blood was shed on that cross. Even though we so often kick against the goads. Even though we so often do not want you to reign over us. You are the king that we needed, even if you aren't always the king that we wanted. And Father, thank you for your grace in this, your mercy in this. Thank you that you know far better what we need than we do. And Father, I pray that every single one of us in this room, if we are already believers in your son, that we would spur each other on to embrace and welcome and worship your son, the way he deserves, as our king over every area of our lives. And Father, I pray that those people in this room who have not yet recognized, accepted, welcomed Jesus as king, I pray that you would be at work in their hearts, at work in their minds, and that every single person in this room today would leave saying the things that the crowd said about Jesus, but actually meaning it giving him our hearts, giving him our minds, giving him our worship. Father, again, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the days ahead, the rest of this week that lead up to Easter. And Father, I pray that when we gather back together a week from now, that we would be overjoyed to celebrate the resurrection of your son. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.